U.S. sovereign credit quality was downgraded last week. Why now? And what's next? Here's what matters. Live from New York City, I'm Lauren Goodwin, and this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we bring you the best insights from across the New York Life Investments platform because we believe that by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everyone. It's the week of August 7th, 2023, and today, Julia Herman and I are here to cover a surprise that hit the markets last week, a downgrade in the credit rating of U.S. sovereign debt, treasuries, from the highest quality rating of AAA to one step below that, AA+. This was done by Fitch Ratings. And you may say to yourself, I remember when S&P did that in 2011, and it was not good news. And that's absolutely right. But the market reaction has been relatively limited in scope this time around. It's not been considered a crisis, per se. But there are still a variety of potential implications for investors that we think are important to discuss today. Right. And it's sort of funny almost to be talking about this now, given that the debt ceiling scare from several months ago has been resolved. And we probably expect to talk more about fiscal matters next year, given the election cycle. But here we are. That's right. And questions we're getting aren't just about why Fitch decided to make this downgrade, but also why now? So, Julia, can you start us off with the why? There's really no guesswork here. I could actually share their reasoning right from the source from Fitch Ratings' statement about why they decided to take this downgrade. Allow me to unfurl my scroll here. The rating downgrade of the United States reflects the expected fiscal deterioration over the next three years, a high and growing general government debt burden, and the erosion of governance relative to AA and AAA-rated peers over the last two decades that has manifested in repeated debt limit standoffs and last-minute resolutions. I want to dig into that a little bit more, but let me first say this in very clear terms. Double A plus, this credit rating, is still an exceptionally strong credit rating and does not signal the start of a fiscal demise or immediate crisis. The list of AAA countries or AAA rated countries is actually very limited. Let me rattle those off really quick. Germany, Denmark, Netherlands, Sweden, Norway, Switzerland, Luxembourg, Singapore, Australia. And the U.S. is still technically on that list if you count that one of the major rating agencies, Moody's, still has a AAA rating for U.S. sovereign debt. But there's no doubt that it's a short list and getting shorter. So back to the reason that Fitch provided, can you shed a little more light on what they mean by the erosion of governance and why that would matter for credit? Really, they're referring to that brinkmanship that we went into a lot of detail on when the debt ceiling was in question. Fitch specifically says that debt limit standoffs and those last-minute resolutions were a key reason that they chose to downgrade, not to mention the unresolved medium-term and long-term fiscal issues that we face to fund things like Social Security and Medicare. We also covered the debt burden issue on the pod together when the debt ceiling was in focus. We know that financing costs are rising as interest rates rise, and we know that in the post-pandemic era, the U.S. is carrying unprecedented amounts of debt, another contributor to the total financing costs rising for the U.S. But what exactly did Fitch cite in its downgrade decision about that? 
They cited all of those things, actually, when it comes to thinking about broader fiscal sustainability and not just that political brinkmanship. Let me pick off a few of those numbers. They expect a general government deficit of 6.9% by 2025. Our debt to GDP ratio is estimated to be over 118% by 2025, which is over two and a half times that of those AAA rated countries, their median debt to GDP ratios. So I want to be clear again that those are big numbers and those are very legitimate concerns, but they were also very well-known variables. There's a reason we didn't just cover the debt ceiling in the spring. We covered the broader subject of debt sustainability. So that leads us to the next major question that we need to answer, which is, why did Fitch make this decision now? And it's not just everyday investors with this question. The talking heads, too, are up in arms about why this decision was taken now. Yes, they are. And back in May of this year, 2023, Fitch put a negative outlook on the U.S. credit rating. And it said that it intended to resolve that negative outlook, which implies either a downgrade or a restoration of a stable outlook at AAA. It was going to resolve that outlook in Q3. So this was a surprise to the markets, but it didn't come from nowhere. And the reason we're talking about the why now is because it's important for the way that investors digest this information. And as you're saying, Julia, this rating change didn't come from nowhere, namely because Standard & Poor's had already made this downgrade from AAA to AA+. Again, that was back in 2011, more than 10 years ago. Well, Lauren, you lived in D.C. at the time. I would love to hear your thoughts on how this feels similar or different from the 2011 decision. Well, look, the persistence of debt ceiling battles and questions about long-term fiscal sustainability are major similarities between now and then. But back in 2011, we were still very much emerging from the global financial crisis, while other countries, namely in Europe, were looking more vulnerable. In contrast, Fitch included expectations for a recession by the first half of 2024 in its downgrade statement. But Maybe the most important difference is that the situation with yields today, which had been in a clear downward trend in 2011, today they're rising, which exacerbates the questions and concern about rising interest costs for the government and therefore the average bill that the government is paying every week, month, year with respect to sustaining its debt level. In the 2011 downgrade scenario, that raised interest costs for the U.S. by over $3 billion U.S. dollars. Nothing to sneeze at, but frankly, a drop in the bucket relative to the overall budget. That brings us to our portfolio pause, a segment of the program where we share an investment idea. And news of the downgrade has a relatively limited impact on equities, at least so far, but it's had a much larger impact on the bond market. And the likely reason is not solely due to the downgrade. It's also due to two other factors that were at play last week. First, treasury auctions that happened on the same day that the downgrade news hit the market. And second, the Bank of Japan's decision to let its government 10-year yield rise from a range up to 0.5% to a range up to 1%. And while these factors may seem totally separate, they matter because all of them have a potential impact to the supply and demand balance for U.S. treasuries. And you know what happens when supply and demand for something changes? the price for that thing can change as well. And in response to these concurrent events, bond prices had one of their worst weeks of 2023 as yields rose across the curve. Well, let's think, Julia, about the three factors impacting bond prices and 
as you said, yields last week and starting with the treasury options. Remind us why these options are happening and why they are a big deal. Absolutely. And let's start with what these auctions are. They're just sales of or issuance of treasury bonds. The U.S. is issuing new debt. And this issuance, these auctions are higher than usual, larger amounts than typical, because we hit the debt ceiling for several months earlier this year. And the amount that we could issue then was limited. And the second reason is because the treasury is refilling its general account balance, which it had drained down when we were up against that debt ceiling. So we're correcting for that debt ceiling period now. This week, Treasury is going to sell at more than expected $103 billion in longer term securities, for example. Okay, so in a couple of important takeaways there. One, Treasury options are completely normal. They're a normal part of the U.S. government financing itself. But two, those that issuance this time around was larger because of these one-off or I guess increasingly not so one-off factors impacting supply and demand in that moment. And so what you're describing is a classic supply and demand issue. There's more supply coming into the market with these issuances and more supply could mean lower prices. And in bonds, lower prices mean higher yields to attract investors to those bonds in the first place. Let me give you two numbers to show how that works in practice. The seven-year Treasury auction that happened last week was awarded at 4.087%, which is the highest on record since 2009. That speaks directly to those higher financing cost concerns that we were talking about. And the second number I want to share, the average yield on Treasury debt right now, so taking the whole curve into consideration, is 2.792%, which is also the highest since 2009. Now, these higher financing costs can also in part be explained by that second factor you mentioned, which is that the Bank of Japan has decided to allow its own 10-year sovereign yield to rise, again, from a band up to 0.5% to a band up to 1%. And let me provide some quick background. The Bank of Japan has been keeping its monetary policy accommodative, even as other governments have been hiking interest rates. By compressing its yield curve, keeping financing costs cheap to encourage economic activity and bring some inflation back to an economy that's been lacking it for over 20 years. The opposite of what the Fed's been doing. Exactly. At least for the last year and change, yes. And originally, this cap was 0.25%. Then they raised it to 0.5% and now to 1%. But Julia, I think it's important that we dive in a bit on what rising yields in Japan have to do with U.S. treasuries. Yes, I think our listeners are probably wondering what the Bank of Japan has anything to do with their perspectives as U.S. investors. So let's give the SparkNotes version. Japanese investors are actually the single biggest cohort of U.S. treasury owners. They also own a lot of other global bonds. And that's for the primary reason that their own bonds, Japanese government bonds, have not been providing them much, if any, yield for decades. So instead, they sought that yield abroad. Exactly. And now that their yields at home are rising, there is a possibility that Japanese investors could repatriate their money that they currently hold in treasuries and other foreign bonds and invest that back into Japanese government bonds. And I want to add that other global investors might be interested in Japanese bonds as well. So it's not just Japanese money that might flow to a new destination and out of treasuries or European bonds, but global money. 
And that takes us back to that supply and demand argument. Less interest in treasuries may reduce demand. So then when demand is lower, yields need to rise to attract investors back into treasuries, just like higher Japanese bond yields are pulling investors there. The major takeaway for me here is that we can't fully differentiate what's caused yields to rise in the past week between the downgrade and the mechanics of these auctions and the Bank of Japan decisions. Those are three pretty big factors. And the downgrade can contribute to higher yields because investors might feel less confident in holding U.S. treasuries and need higher yields to attract them there. But as we noted, these auctions likely had an even bigger effect, driving yields higher because there's more supply coming into the market. So The X factor then is the Japanese bond question. How many investors will be pulled from one market to the other based on all of these changes happening at once? And the question for us as investors now is, what does this mean for the U.S. Treasury bond market? Are yields going to keep rising? How should investors be approaching their fixed income exposure at a time like this? And frankly, that question goes even beyond just treasuries and to all of fixed income. Well, based on just bond auctions alone, it looks like there's still more room for yields to potentially rise. The downgrade and Japan factor only exacerbate that dynamic. So even as yields have continued to rise, we've heard a lot of calls for investors to add duration or interest rate risk, implying that yields might fall and prices might rise for bonds further out on the curve. So thinking 10-year yields or longer. And we're considering a balanced approach here. If you can be agile in your duration bets, by all means, play in that sandbox. For investors looking for a lower portfolio turnover approach, focusing on those shorter duration bets, including short duration high yield, could be more suitable. And then adding duration in certain fixed income markets where the curve rewards investors with higher yield for those longer tenor bonds, think the municipal or high yield curves, for example, That can be an option for investors who do want to add duration, but don't want to necessarily be limited to the treasury market. Coming up next, July's inflation figures paired with ongoing releases as a part of the second quarter earnings season are top of mind for us. Together, they'll tell us how U.S. corporations and households are dealing with cost pressures and changes in consumer demand. But that's it for today. We'll be back next week for more Market Matters. In the meantime, please remember to give us a like, follow, or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a question or topic of interest, reach out to us on LinkedIn. You can also follow our views at NewYorkLifeInvestments.com and click the Insights tab. Until then, I'm Laura Goodwin, helped out by Julia Herman today, and we'll see you next time. Our podcast is produced by Will Tyus, and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I will now read our disclosures from compliance. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which will vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment as at a specific date, is subject to change, and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issuer or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. There is no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances, and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is both the service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with the New York Life Insurance Company. Securities are distributed by Nylife Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. Nylife Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.